Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Flitz. Well, we could pick... I think just about any Clint Eastwood one-liner for today and and open the show with it. I don't know if there's one that we can settle on here for certain, though, Dave. You could, and it would make my day. (laughs) See, exactly. Yeah, very easy to pick out a Clint Eastwood one-liner from the, the collection of them. Are you feeling lucky as you tune in today for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks? I hope you are. We're going to be talking a lot of Clint Eastwood today. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. Or are you the man with no name? I kind of sound a little bit like Batman when I put it that way. You kind of do. Yeah, talking I'm like Clint that. I'm Clint Eastwood. If Eastwood had ever done a turn at Batman there, that that certainly would be what you're doing. But welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2 just down from the airport. Boy, have those new theater rooms been a hit Ooh. at the Bemidji Theater. It's just been awesome. Have you gotten to be in there for no. a movie yet? You know, Not ev- yet? Every single time I'm going to go, something comes up and... You and I talk off air, Soon so you enough. know what it is. Yep. It's Soon not the enough. worst reasons to not go, but no, I got to sit in one, but it, the movie wasn't on yet, so it doesn't count. Right. I have I'm been gonna there. I'm going to be there. I know. You will be there soon enough. I have. It's great. You got to check it out. Why don't you rub it in? Who rub it in. Rub Sorry. it in. Uh, they're working on the other half of the theater rooms right now. Those should be ready uh, getting into May. Those should be getting ready as we get ready for the summer movie slate, which we're a few weeks out from talking about the summer movie slate. We'll be getting into that here in a future episode of the podcast so keep an eye out for that but in the meantime those five theater rooms that are open right now they are looking pretty Mm, great and very nice yeah they've been awesome to be in so thanks to the Bemidji Theater for sponsoring the podcast go check it out of course they've got the Tuesday night specials that they do and uh, the the college and school nights as well that they do for the specials so make sure you check those out at the Bemidji Theater a great spot they've done some great work I can't wait to uh, get my butt toasted into one of those and watch a good show that's right Anything in terms of the latest in movie news that is coming to mind here, Dave, that that you're thinking of? Not necessarily. It's kind of the calm before the storm. But uh, I did read something that kind of got us going into our topic for today, so maybe we can use that to springboard into it. Uh, Clint Eastwood, he's he's an icon. He goes as far back as the 50s, really kind of hit big in the 60s, and has been an icon ever since. The word is he is preparing what will be his final film ever. And it's sad when you watch those icons, preferably on their own two feet in their own steam, decide how they're going to exit the stage. And Clint Eastwood is going to be one of those guys. He is gearing up for what they're saying is going to be the end. Well, he's 92, so he has had quite a run that he's gone on here through his whole career, which we're going to discuss at length here today on the show. But, I mean, when you think about that and realize that, it's like, yeah, he, he has done this for quite an extended time. He's, you know, and he's got such a... 
I, I hate to put it this way, but he delivers the widget. And the widget is just a kind of like a MacGuffin term, really. It's just a thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that it defines anything, but it's a particular brand and it is what it is. And it doesn't really vary from, from thing to thing. It just kind of is. And that's what Clint Eastwood has done, at least as an actor. But when he got behind the scenes, particularly as a director, his films, as far as the subject material, they varied very, very much. So as an actor, he delivered the widget. As an actor's director, he dire- he delivered so much more than that. So it's almost its own debate. Was was he a better actor? Was he a better director and producer? These are all good questions, but he was if any debate is going to be had, there's none to be had. He was truly a Hollywood big screen icon. The way that he got there, though, was sort of by accident. Yeah. From what I've read, as far as the way that his career got started, because... You mean that Old West guy that fell into the ravine? Oh, wait, no, that's another movie. I'm Not sorry. Not quite like that. I'm no. Sorry. But no, he was out of school. He was he kind of drifted from job to job, ended up in the military during the Korean War as well. And there are some varying accounts of how he how he got into acting. There was sort of a connection, a knowing somebody. One a CBS press release had said that he was kind of spotted was how it was, which has been uh, disputed a little bit, but regardless, it was not exactly a linear simple path to getting into it that that Eastwood had. It was sort of a knowing somebody kind of thing that got him started. But that's kind of common if you go that far back. You know, the way you you can't look at Hollywood today and look at that as the standard because the way Hollywood has functioned just from a mechanical standpoint has really varied over the years. And back then, a lot of times you would be on the snack bar set and some guy would walk in and you should be in pictures and people fantasize about that. But sometimes that's how it worked. But even then, like Tom Selleck, for example, the very first role he ever played was a dead man on a table. That was his first role. Clint Eastwood, to work his way in, literally from the bottom, working your way up, that's kind of the way it was done. Here's a shocker, Dave. He was regarded as very stiff early yeah. on. when In the 50s, when he was first getting started and, and getting looked at a little bit, they loved his stature. They loved his appearance. The the studio folks who got a chance to kind of give Eastwood a look, but they also said, "Man, you gotta you gotta loosen up here." He didn't know which way to turn. He didn't really have much. Which what a surprise, given what we know about Clint Eastwood and and his acting, that that's kind of where he started. And the fact that he talked through his teeth as much as he did, which became a staple of his. Yeah. But but at the time. This was when Hollywood was still thinking about, you know, you had to present yourself in a certain manner and in a certain way with the way that you delivered dialogue. And, and yeah, they were big on looks still. That was starting to change in the 60s, certainly would start to change that more as method acting started to grow and as as far as like going against the grain started to change things. But there in the 50s, when Eastwood was getting started, it was a slow go for him. He really he hadn't developed the widget yet. You know, he, he's got his style. He's got his way of doing it. And the way he would deliver, say, the anti-hero role, which is kind of, that covers a lot of ground when it comes to Eastwood because he perfected it. He was the guy that was gruff and he wasn't going to take any guff. He was that kind of guy. 
But your first time getting in, particularly in the 50s when he got his start, they didn't do roles like that. James Dean was probably as close to it as it got, and he was just Mr. Sex Appeal. And while, yes, Clint Eastwood was voted you know, world sexiest man, according to People magazine, that was when he got it perfected. At this point, he was stiff, and he just didn't know how to deliver it. Back then, everyone had that cosmopolitan accent, see? And he just wasn't that guy. He wasn't James Cagney. He did his own version of it, and it would take until the 60s, really, that he would find his way, but it would kind of get him out of Hollywood at first and get him into the Italian, or as they called them, spaghetti westerns, where he really didn't get a start, but he got his breakthrough. Well, what was happening, though, when the 60s rolled around was Eastwood had found his breakthrough role. Like, he had yeah, bounced true. around to a bunch of different stuff in TV, small-time kind of things when it, when it came to movies, but it was Rawhide in the late 1950s that gave him a solid role that he could be in. And by solid role, I mean something consistent. But from what I, I'm reading here, it was a grind. I mean, he was filming six days a week, 12 hours a day, and yet he still got criticized. Like they sure. said, you're, you're still not you're not working hard enough. He was viewed as this kind of wooden and laconic kind of guy. Well, I don't know if you could use iconic at that point. But, laconic. Oh, okay, laconic. He, you know, but he wasn't the name yet. Rawhide was the name, not Clint Eastwood. He just happened to appear. This guy, Clint so-and-so, on this Rawhide show. and the, the Rowdy the, Yates. Yeah, yeah, the ratio hadn't been reversed yet. He wasn't name above the title yet. You could probably say uh, so-and-so starring in such-and-such and get away with that, but Clint Eastwood was not there at that point. They made the joke about it in Back to the Future 3 back in 1955. Clint who? Yeah, I haven't heard of him yet. He's coming, and it really wasn't until the 60s when people started to garner not, what's that show, huh? But what, who's this guy? And that's where it started. And so where he teamed up with uh, Sergio Leone, I messed, that up, I messed up the name, but um, those Italian westerns, he kind of needed to, much like, um, oh, who was uh, Leo DiCaprio's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? What was the name of the Rick Dalton. Yep. He it's, had to pull a Rick Dalton. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah, when you read Eastwood's career trajectory, it reads just like what what Rick Dalton was was portrayed well, as in Once Upon on, a Time in Hollywood. It, yeah, clearly yeah. had some basing in Clint Eastwood because you have a guy who's on TV. Although I think Dalton was given more of a front yeah. and center thing than and had a little more notoriety than Eastwood. But Eastwood was kind of facing that that he was sort of not really going much of anywhere. As he he got into his thirties, then by the time the early nineteen sixties rolled around, he was thirty years old. Not really going much of anywhere in his career, and all of a sudden you have these, as as Rick Dalton says them, Italian westerns that come up, these spaghetti westerns that Sergio Leone was on the front line of pioneering, and that's suddenly where Clint Eastwood found something that would make him at least eventually, a household name, although it certainly didn't start out that way. No, but they started to get noticed. Uh, it's it's everyone wants to strike it big your first time and just become rich and famous immediately from there on out. You have to build it. And back in that era, you really had to build it. But this was the first real true plank. You can make the debate about Rawhide, but it was when he went out east, far east, and really struck out in a good way with those spaghetti westerns. The, the movies were very good, but people started to take note. Who is that guy? And that was part of the appeal. Pretty much, I think, all of the characters, most of them, had no name. They just were that guy, that that savior. and With a nickname of some kind. Yeah, with some sort of a nickname. 
And this was a, a role that in a lot of ways he would repeat. Now, it was back in the 60s with the Spaghetti Westerns, but it's not like he left that behind forever. He would always revisit it. There was Pale Rider in the 80s where he basically was doing the same thing. Unforgiven in the mid-90s, early 90s, he kind of did the same thing, a little more of a backstory to him. He wasn't out of nowhere. But uh, this was something that he would, to some extent, revisit over and over, and it became a staple. It became his... Maybe not best-known widget, but it was his first best-known widget that he got into. Maybe this is where we should start here. Yeah, it's it's funny here because what I'm reading is that a co-host, a, a co-star of Eastwood's from Rawhide named Eric Fleming rejected uh, that offer to be in a fistful of dollars. And that's what then, but, but somebody else suggested Eastwood to Leone about being in the role because of that that cowboy kind of role. But here's what Eastwood said later about that transition. He said, quote, In Rawhide, I did get awfully tired of playing the conventional white hat, the hero who kisses old ladies and dogs and was kind to everybody. I decided it was time to be an anti-hero. And that's what you found here with A Fistful of Dollars, where you have this this enigma, this just enigmatic gunslinger who's, who's rolling through it, that man-with-no-name character, and all that came to encompass him with the way that he dressed and the way that he carried himself with his mannerisms, the way that he spoke, or in his case, didn't speak all that often. But of course, the way that he handled a gun and did so in a world that was very against the grain for the way Westerns were at the time. The classic John Wayne Western, or, or what had been portrayed as a Western on film to this point, it, this was something completely different. It was desolate. It was lawless, and even those who who maintained some semblance of law, like Eastwood's character in A Fistful of Dollars, they did so to make money. I mean, he plays off those two families in that movie just brilliantly, back and forth, back and forth, and yet he gets caught up in the turmoil of this clash that's going on. There's a little bit of humanity that his character shows in there, especially toward this one family that's also caught in the crosshairs of this family battle. But the way that he administers justice is with a gun barrel. And he's doing it in in such a way that is not all that you can get behind, but at the same time, boy, is it compelling, too. You know, in sports, there's the color guy and there's the play-by-play guy. I'll let you be the play-by-play here, and I'll offer up a little color in the background just to kind of enunciate a little bit what you said. I'll make reference to a good comedy western send-up that came out in 1985, I think, called Rustler's Rhapsody, that plays a little fun to exactly what you just brought up, the way that the John Ford westerns were of the 50s, and then the much more desolate era of the 60s, and that's played up for fun in this movie. Tom Berenger stars as sort of a a squeaky clean Roy Rogers type. Uh, G.W. Bailey from the Police Academy movies is in it. In fact, the people that made the Police Academy movies made this. It's a good movie. It's a good send-up. And it kind of illustrates what you're talking about a little bit, some some fun uh, homework that you may have missed out on the first time. But another thing is, I'm going to draw a comparison here that you won't see coming, but I think does bear credence. Um, You're talking about Clint Eastwood kind of establishing his widget or his character, his brand, and what he becomes best known for. Eastwood telling the story now is like, yeah, I just decided to do it a different way, so I did it exactly that, and I nailed it. And I don't think it usually works out that easy. I'm going to make a comparison with him to pro wrestling, where a lot of these guys kind of develop their their character, their their tick, their gimmick, if you want to call it, 
And one guy that comes to mind that is also a well-known anti-hero type is Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he was in this group called the WCW, and they were they didn't really like what he was doing, and they fired him. And so he goes this other kind of underground promotion, not unlike a spaghetti western far outside of the norm, and he really began to establish this anti-hero thing, not knowing exactly what he was going to do. Maybe he knew a direction, but really kind of figured it out on the way. And I think if you watch The Fistful of Dollars and then go on after that and get to Good, Bad, and Ugly and eventually make your way back to Clint Eastwood really, truly making it back to the true Hollywood mainstream, you can see the track that he's starting to figure it out and he's starting to get his widget in each movie after the next, after the next, starting to get it down. So while I appreciate what he says, I think that what he says is a very easy summary of what's not quite the reality. He was figuring it out as he went with each time that he could try to go a little further and talk to his director. Sure, why not? Try it. And he would, and it would work. He was on the right trail. But I don't think it was just, I decided to do it this way, and so I did. That's a really brief summary, Here's another but accurate. Here's another great quote to those lines that Eastwood said um, about playing his character across those three movies. Because it's not the same character in all three movies. It's a different guy. But they are all very variance. closely tied together. Yeah, like you said, there's a variance uh, with each movie with that character. And Eastwood said, I wanted to play that character with an economy of words and create this whole feeling through attitude and movement. It was just the kind of character I had envisioned for a long time. Keep to the mystery and elude what happened to the past. It came about after the frustration of doing Rawhide for so long. I felt the less he said, the stronger he became. And the more he grew in the imagination of the audience. And I think that's what we appreciate looking back on his man with no name character and why he is so iconic now when we think back on him. Because he he leaves that mystery out there. there there's not like this need for dialogue that you have there. It's very music based. It's very visual. The cinematography that Leone used feeds into that. And then you have Eastwood with his mannerisms. And with his actions, creating somebody who has such an air of mystery about him that not everybody really was on board with. Now, those movies were very popular in Italy. The the Spaghetti Westerns, very, very popular in Italy. Eastwood was a star there. It wasn't until 1967 that all three movies were released a few months apart in order and finally came to the United States. It was January, May, and December that Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly were all released. Critics didn't like them, though. They didn't, well, they, they didn't like them. Well, who cares what the critics but, think? But audiences did. They, they that's loved all that matters. It. Yeah, they loved it, and they loved that it was something different. And again, this was a time when movies were starting to change with their tenor and their tone. This was These were violent movies for the time. Like, you've got Bonnie and Clyde coming along that really changed the game as far as violence on the screen. And now you have these three movies that are also changing, especially the Western image, like we described earlier. And Eastwood and his type of character, and like you described, the way he wanted to take a different spin on it, that was a big part of what made this different then, too. I mean, Eastwood became a star thanks to those movies and how people treated them. I agree. I think the way that it was shown, it was much less um, Disney-esque, if you want to use that term. And showing a lot more like real life. But even furthermore, I think he gave a lot of credit to audiences themselves. They still make movies today where everything needs to be spelled out and your hand held and and, uh, commentary put up on the screen so you can interpret what the people are saying. Even if it's nothing that would have 
language to it. The language is in the way that it's presented, and I think that he got that. He knew that. You don't need to explain everything. Let the people figure out. And even if everyone comes up with their own version of an interpretation, that's fine, too. Let them fill in the blanks. The scariest parts in Jaws are when you don't see the shark because the thing didn't work, but they made it work. When Eastwood isn't going to show you everything of what happened to this guy, how his psyche was formed, let you figure that out. You don't need to do a prequel a few dollars before the sense and figure out exactly how the man became the man that he became. It takes the sex out of it, takes the mystery, takes the romance out of it. Just let it be. And he got that. Yeah, and those movies have just grown in stature now looking back on them because of what they changed with the genre and how much of a pivot that it was there and how Eastwood was at at the core of that with how he did it and how he carried himself in it. And it's, again, there is that intrigue and appeal that comes from it then too, even though this was something that hadn't been seen before at the time and it took people time to latch onto it because True. even I'm reading here that by the time 1968 rolled around, like Eastwood's 38 by this point and his... Like he's starting to get more notoriety, but even but in the media, people were still like, you know, who is this guy? But then Hang 'em High came along, and now that movie got not only a lot of audience praise, but critical praise too. Absolutely. Well, at this point, you know, westerns had done their thing on the small screen back in the fifties. Their things are becoming much more mainstream. You're starting to come into the era of Butch and Cassidy. You're start and, and the Sundance Kid. You're starting to get westerns starting to come back at least on the big screen to the mainstream. And you could almost call Bonnie and Clyde a western in a way. Theoretically, it kind of is in a way. Um, but it was starting to come into the mainstream. And did the chicken create the egg, or the egg create the chicken? But Clint Eastwood was at home at this. Um, as he started to make his way back into the mainstream and brought a little bit of that spaghetti back with him, um, he would start to move into different areas. We won't necessarily do this podcast chronologically as far as his career goes. We'll kind of stick with the cowboy and the Western and the man with no name. And some some action stuff. And some action stuff, too. But uh, when he got back, he was also anxious to move off into a different area. Yeah, we saw that with Where Eagles Dare. That yep. was one where he jumped into a different genre, getting into World War II a little bit, and some military stuff there as well when he was alongside Richard Burton. Kelly's Heroes, which I I found that movie a few years ago on TCM, and I, I love watching that movie. Just again, it, it had a little bit of a comedic element, that movie did too, alongside of this war movie. this That's also a treasure hunt that yep. those guys are on, basically, with trying to steal this Nazi gold. And there's kind of a comedic side of that with Donald Sutherland and the crew that they had, um, which was led by Eastwood in that movie doing that. But like you said, the, the, the cowboy western side was still a huge part of Eastwood's career at this point. But like you said, by the time the 1970s rolled around, there was starting to become this, this clear itch that he had to branch out away from that. Even though you still had some big western ones that were there like um, Two Mules for Sister Sarah with Shirley MacLaine and then Outlaw Josie Wales, which came along later in the 70s. Things started to change, though, with the genre that Eastwood was involved with. Still violent, but a different kind of setting than the Westerns. But even before we paint that picture, you know, he figured out the widget. We've said this before. He's charismatic just naturally. He's got that. And that worked to really making this potentially unlikable guy likable. He brought this mystery to him and that charismatic attitude that he brought. But one other thing that Clint Eastwood is very well known for, he was just in interviews or in roles, he's a charming guy. He really is. 
He started, well, when he got the looks that he's got He's there. got the looks, yeah. but he's got the charm. You know, if you got the looks and you open your mouth and you're a blibbering idiot, you lose the charm real fast. But he's a charmer. He started to work that into some of those, even some of the military movies, Kelly's Heroes. He's bringing some of that charm out to go with the look and his charismatic mannerisms. These are working for him. And some of the characters he plays, you it's not that far of a leap to say he's an unlikable character, except he's got these other positive qualities that makes what could be an unlikable character a likable character. He's finding ways to perfect the widget and do the widget in different ways. This is a word. We could turn this podcast into a drinking game if we say the word widget too much. But he's so good at well, it. Well, that's been you. <laughs> so then we start getting into a whole other part of his career that he is arguably just as well, possibly even better known for. And this is when he brought in San Francisco detective Harry Callahan and the Dirty Going back Harry to movies. his roots, too. Yeah. San Francisco was where he was born. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the first Dirty Harry movie is based off of a true story that had happened just years before, not that much. The Zodiac Killings is pretty much the storyline somewhat altered to the first Dirty Harry movie. And he would do four, four Dirty Harry movies, I think. There was Sudden Impact. I'm getting these out of order, I'm sure. Magnum Force and the Deadpool. Those were the four, I believe, plus the first original Dirty Harry. They were all Dirty Harry movies. And they went from the early 70s into the early 80s. So it was about a 10, 15-year span that he would do a Dirty Harry and then do something completely different. There are five total. Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, The Enforcer, Enforcer, Sudden Sudden Impact, and The Deadpool. I forgot The Enforcer. There we go. Sorry, everybody. My dad would be so mad at me. But it was one of those where he would do a Dirty Harry and then do something else. And it was all kind of a different version of the same general thing. He only rarely would break out into some very different form and then go back to some familiar territory, not unlike, say, a Stallone that would do a Rocky and a Rambo movie, then go do something else and then come back to familiar territory, keep those box office receipts going. And in a way, he would do those big crowd-pleasing movies so that he might be able to go off in different territory and be able to afford it by doing the big budget movies. If he redefined a genre with his man with no name character in those spaghetti westerns, he probably invented a genre here in this one with the kind of cop character yeah. that Harry Callahan was in those movies, right? Oh, absolutely. And you know what he started in the 70s, you can really see going to big effect uh, as the 80s everything was big. This is largely you could trace all these iconic characters Rambo. Pretty much any character Stallone or uh, Schwarzenegger ever played could go back to a Dirty Harry, uh Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, all of these. The genesis is Harry Callahan with Dirty Harry. He's the one cop who who doesn't work with partners and his captain hates him and you're going to tear down the city, he became that, even though it was early 70s, became that 1980s archetype, one-man cop wrecking crew. He was the first one. Yeah, there were examples that existed previously of that. Like you can, if you think back to Steve McQueen's character in Bullet, but that's that's a one-off or even like for me, I think of Harry Palmer, the English character who's supposed to be like the everyman James Bond a little bit, but Harry Callahan took that and took it into made it his own it made it his own made it a very violent one made it a loose cannon type as well a a guy who is kind of his own man within a structured system the police system 
trying to resolve these grisly situations that he's involved in. And again, this is we need law enforcement. We need cops. And here's a guy going against the grain, going for the better good, granted, but nobody in positions of authority that weren't him himself saw this. But this is where the way that Harry Callahan was portrayed by Clint Eastwood, he managed to pull it off with his charisma and his charm that's just natural to him. He's learning how to make that talking through his teeth thing work. He'd be grinding his teeth. The thing you have to ask is, do I feel lucky? Well, do you punk? And, you know, this is the kind of stuff. <laughs> with his 44 Magnum yeah, hand. <laughs> who's going to take this guy seriously? The most powerful unless... handgun in the world. And blow your head clean off. Who talks like that? You're going to be pulled in front of some sort of a internal affairs review so fast it make his head spin. But he pulls it off. You got to find a way to deliver it. And that was part of what made it work. He knew how to get involved with good pictures and not only um, you know get a good team. He was very involved behind the scenes, not unlike Harrison Ford along with Spielberg and Lucas to figure out what made Indiana Jones work. He did that for just about every role he did. Speaking of roles that he did, a quick sidebar here, too, to I think back to an episode that you and I did of what ifs and what could have beens. There are two really interesting ones in Eastwood's career that maybe people know about, but maybe they don't, that existed in the 1970s. And, and you probably won't be surprised to hear them. You've probably heard them. Number one, the fact that he was approached to play James Bond. Which I had not known, and I, I looked into that a little bit and was very, very interested that he got approached to be the next Bond before Roger Moore ended up settling in into that role. But Eastwood turned it down because he felt that it should be an English actor. He felt it should be somebody specifically there to and take Bert that Burt Reynolds also got proposed, and others did too. There were some from uh, not Austri- not uh, Britain, but Australia. Well, Lazenby had been Australian. And the wise actors that weren't just looking at the paydays, no, I don't know. You, you need an Englishman, an Englishman to do this. The other role that's really interesting to think about, what if he had played that, was he got offered the role of Captain Benjamin Willard in Apocalypse Now, which eventually was played by Martin Sheen. But imagine Eastwood being in that role. But he 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 turned that down because he didn't want to be on location in the Philippines was why he didn't want to get into that role. But that's another fascinating what if or what could have been there in Eastwood's career there in the 70s. Those were two really interesting ones that I found there because his star had grown so much by that point that he was able to pick and choose his roles a little bit. You know, I think I think he would have nailed that role, but I think it's best that he didn't. Eastwood is known for a lot of things, and he is a force to be reckoned with. He is a force of nature. When he works with directors that are not himself, he is generally working with people that he can co-call the shots, if nothing else, if not even over the 50-50 line. Working with somebody like Francis Ford Coppola, I mean, a lot of people on Apocalypse now almost had nervous breakdowns with the way that was done, not to mention Brando in the middle of it all. Putting Eastwood in the middle of that, I think that movie would have broken down into a lawyer battle, and it never would have finished filming. Uh, But I think had it done, I think it would have done great. He would have done great in the Martin Sheen role uh, had it happened. But I think he was on his own course at that point, and it really worked. At this point, he is perfecting the anti-hero. Whatever the Spaghetti Westerns were doing, the Dirty Harry movies were taking it and adding charm and a whole lot more. And he really, really made it his own, and Dirty Harry carried him into the 80s. 
I think the biggest departure, the most non-widget role I can think of that I remember him doing at all was the Marine Corps movie, Heartbreak Ridge, is that what it was? Where he was the drill instructor and he was absolutely putting the Clint Eastwood widget on speed. And it was way over the top and he was, you know, really gruff and he was talking all like this the whole movie. And it was almost like he was a pro wrestler in the movie, honestly. And he nailed the role. He did a great job. But even then, he starts dallying a little further into comedy, more so than he had done with, say, the orangutan movies, Any Which Way But Loose, uh, Pink Cadillac with Bernadette Peters. Um, He was really starting to realize he had more than just the gruff talking through his teeth. But he could do that but in a much more charm and let the anti-hero go to the background and let the charm come to the foreground. And well, he, he found had, success. He had done a musical, too. That's I, true. I remember he had done, a, I think that was the late 60s here. Yeah, Paint Your Wagon, I yep. think, was was that one where he did one foray into a musical, which I, I can't even imagine what that would It's a better stage show like. than the movie. That's It's fun to mention. Let's never mention it again. Yeah, but um, yeah, when it comes to the <laughs> acting, yeah, I... I haven't seen Heartbreak Ridge, but I've heard that that's that's kind of he he it's really good. he really plays hard into that hardline kind of role there. Well, you're given the role as a Marine Corps drill sergeant. I mean, you're gonna you don't play that light. You just don't think R. Lee Ermy. He's the guy who was on you know Full Metal Jacket. He was also the mail call show, and he he was a real life draw a drill sergeant. When you're gonna go this route, and you know R. Lee Ermy had his own version of it. Clint Eastwood was the grumbling. He was just, he was a force of nature in life and on the big screen, and he found a way to really make it work. He was so involved in uh, the creation of these movies, whether it was Dirty Harry, whether it was Escape from Alcatraz, and he called a lot of the shots, more so power than you'd think your standard actor that wasn't Brando would get. Well, we're starting, yeah, we're starting to turn the page on that here when going through the progression of Eastwood's career the 70s, that was when he started to get more into the creation side of this. He'd always had interest in it. I was reading a little that he directed, I think, a couple of trailers for the late mm-hmm. years of Rawhide, but they never actually went to air. But he he always had an inclination, it seems like, to want to get into the director's chair or be involved in the creation of this more. And then starting with... Uh, um, I let's see. It was 1971 with uh, play Misty for me. Yeah, that was the first time that he actually got into the director's chair itself, and then also starred in the movie. And the, what a creepy movie! Was so built on atmosphere and tension, and that was not something. It wasn't an unfamiliar element to Eastwood movies, particularly the spaghetti westerns. Plenty of you know tension. But the way that this first-time director really made it work, it was it still holds up to this day, and it's really about a stalker, you know, play Misty for me. Yep. And a lot of these, funny enough, Jessica that, Walter. Yeah, yeah, it's a great movie that's still here in 2023 holds up. It was a very first outing and a very good first outing for Eastwood that would be the start of, in a lot of ways, a career renaissance for him as he got older. Those parts that he was so well known for were harder to come. He had to create them himself. And so roles that would come down the road later, like Gran Torino, these were definitely in the vein of what he was doing, but those roles weren't going to get offered to him. He knew that they could still be made, but he had to do those himself. And so as the director slash star, he started to do those. And whether sometimes he would direct the movie and not be in it at all, and other times he would just direct it and be the star. Well, that was a big part of a lot of those early ones. When you look at the director credits from the 70s, there there were a few common things about it. Number one, he was often acting in it. Number two, 
he was often acting alongside Sandra Locke in mm-hmm. it. Number three, he would usually be, yeah, he would be involved on the directorial side. Like you put that combo together of directing, acting, and starring alongside Sandra Locke, who he was very close with at the time. And I like Clint Eastwood. I'm a fan of Clint Eastwood. But at the same time, he was becoming a powerhouse in Hollywood. I'm trying to think here. I am drawing a blank. There was a, Oh, no, this was in the 80s now. He wanted his son to get involved in the first Karate Kid movie. He wanted his son, uh, Scott Eastwood, to be cast into the role. Or maybe it wasn't Scott. Maybe it was a different son. And he didn't get the role. When Columbia Pictures did the Karate Kid, and they whoever there made the decision not to cast young Eastwood in the role. Columbia Pictures at that point was owned by Coca-Cola. Shortly after that, Eastwood banned all Coca-Cola products from the set of his further movies because he was mad that his son didn't get the Karate Kid role. Ah, bitter. Come on. But, you know, that is what it is. And this kind of goes to show he was, I'm not going to use the word control freak, but he knew what he wanted to do. He wasn't interested in doing the studio battles every single movie when he knew what he wanted to do. So he started getting more and more involved in the way the movie needs to look, the way it needs to come, and he would work with the writer. Never got a writing credit to my recollection, but he was very involved in it until the point where his directing career began to eclipse his acting career. And a lot of times they would go hand in hand. He directed a uh, Kevin Costner movie, A Perfect World, in the early 90s. And this is kind of where the director started to take over. But even then, he would use that to get back to earlier things. Unforgiven comes to mind, and that was his farewell to the Western genre, and he won a lot of Oscars for it. Yeah, let's talk about Unforgiven, because we're getting toward the end of the 80s here, and he's really made that crossover where he's directing, he's doing some acting, he's doing both at the same time. I'm really interested here seeing this. Unforgiven apparently was something he was working on as early as the 1970s. That he was writing it, working on it, but he wanted to wait on it until a time where he felt it was going to be suitable for him to play his character at an older age and make it a farewell to the Westerns that he had been so involved with. Why did Unforgiven resonate so well in your mind? I've I've seen it. I've watched it. It's a tremendous movie. But it didn't just resonate. It was award-winning. It was award-winning in a way that had never happened for Eastwood before with Best Director, Best Picture, and all that came with that. And it's an iconic, iconic Western movie. Yeah. Why did it resonate so well, do you think? It's, it's, no pun intended. It's not a magic bullet on this. There's a lot of reasons. For one, he'd been working on it so long. Just reading the script, let alone watching it, is it's mahogany, Amish-crafted furniture. It is so well-crafted. It is layered. It is nuanced. It is all there on the page. And at that point in his career, not only was there the appeal of him going back to his roots in many, many ways, that a lot of people wanted to be a part of that. And it wasn't just about necessarily the biggest cast. It was about the best cast. Gene Hackman, who plays the, the corrupt sheriff, really didn't want to be involved in this. He was turned off by the violence of it. And he had he had done a movie just a couple of years prior called Mississippi Burning. And it was a very gritty, very tough, very violent movie. And it really turned Gene Hackman as an actor off. Well, Eastwood wanted him for this movie and really, really had to persuade him to get in and do it. And he did. And it's not the last violent movie that you know Gene Hackman ever did. I mean, come on, he's Lex Luthor for one. But he, he had the ability to get people involved that he wanted involved. And if you look at the craftsmanship of it, not only did he direct it and star it, and he was a producer, and he got a lot of the cast involved, Morgan Freeman and others, he did the soundtrack to it, if you're unaware. Wow. Yeah, and when you think about 
Unforgiven as well. It, it's kind of this culmination of the progression that had happened for Eastwood and reflecting on the Western genre as well and kind of a, a gate closing in some ways to it, which we talked about in our Western episode. We we discussed Unforgiven and just how significant it was because it had the hallmarks of some of those early Eastwood Westerns. And yet with more dialogue and more detail, and not a, not a ton, not that, that poor dialogue that he talked about that he wanted to be rid of, but it had more dialogue and it had a lot of nuance to it. Like you described, there's a lot of depth and nuance that exists in Unforgiven alongside of these hallmarks of the way that the anti-hero Western genre had grown. And you put all of that together into this film and add to it what was done with how it was filmed, how it was scored, all of that. And you have yourself this this whirlwind of a phenomenal movie that kind of in some ways said goodbye to the Western genre and to one of the greats of that genre. I'm going to say it again because we've said it a bunch of times in this episode. This is where you watch him create the widget. He had perfected that character, but that's not what he's playing in this movie. It's what he becomes in this movie. But in the movie, he was a bad guy. And it's lied without any real direct verbiage, at least right away, that he was a bad guy in the past, but he reformed himself for the sake of his wife, and he's trying to swear off alcohol, he's trying to be a good guy, and as everything is going against him, you see all of a sudden like a light switch. He pulls out the cork for his teeth and spits it out, he takes the drink, you can see him transform, I'm done trying to fight who I am, and you see him switch into the widget that he has perfected between not just the spaghetti westerns, but there's a little dirty hairy in there. There's a little of a lot of what he has perfected. And not just for the story, this version of the character that everyone knows him so well, this, I'm going to say, is the best version of this widget character he has ever done. Because there's an aged quality to it with him being at that at that later age it's no wonder he wanted to do it at that age like by now i think he was 61 62 by that stage so it's no wonder because you you have the benefit of somebody who clearly has a lot of past experiences that burden him that he's trying to keep shut down and yet that moment comes and he brings that back and yet you can tell there's almost this regretfulness about the fact that he has to step into that but it's sort of the hand that's been forced upon him within that movie. And so all of a sudden you're like, this is the Eastwood that we've known and seen and the kind of character that we've known and seen. And yet there's a lot of scar tissue that comes with that within the movie too. And just even on the surface, there's no shortage of character in the movie, whether it's old Bob, whether it's uh, Gene Hackman's character, the young kid that teams up with Eastwood, they're all talking up such a huge game and how good they are. But when it finally comes down to it, this guy who doesn't even want to have any part in this lifestyle at all, when he flips that switch, he is better than all of them combined. He is the true evil, truly, but masterful at what he does. Nobody is badder or better than this guy. And he does it so well. And for that and many other reasons, it is exceptionally good. A great cast, a great story. Um, I cannot find a flaw with it. I can't think of one edit I would make to the movie. I'm not prepared to say that Unforgiven is a perfect movie, but as far as a Western goes, oh, you'd be hard-pressed to find me anyone better, any Western better than that. Now, his acting credits really started to dwindle then the rest of the 90s. There there were a few instances that were exceptions like Bridges of Madison County and some others that were in there where he made an exception there. But Don't forget Space Cowboys. <laughs> Or Space Cowboys as well. But the, the directing the directing credits, it's not like they picked up, but he, 
again, he, yeah, he directed Space Cowboys, sadly. Directed Bridges of Madison County, True Crime as well. But those directing and acting ones, now he was really getting tied in with, with doing both. If he was doing a project, he was... He was probably going to be starring in it as well. Mystic River was an exception, although he scored that one, too. Yeah, yeah. He, he did that. But it, the project started to become more and more. He was really picking and choosing his spots here. But a lot of the same themes, like very mature themes throughout his movies that, that were just there as he continued to turn over that, working into the director's chair more and more, picking and choosing his acting as well. But like a lot of... A lot of projects that really had his thumbprint, and you could see it. He has a particular vibe to what he does. It doesn't matter what it is. It's kind of got a familiar vibe. Rare. I'm trying to think of the exception, and maybe the closest I can get might be Space Cowboys. That is the most fun movie that he did. And not to say there isn't a, le- a degree of fun in any of the movies. Of course there are, but they all have that. They're su- they take themselves seriously. The characters take themselves seriously. And I gotta think Space Cowboys is probably it's a it's a serious movie. If you're not familiar with it, it's aging astronauts that you know years after they were retired as astronauts go back up into space. It's got a great all star cast: James Garner, Tommy Lee Jones, and others. Uh, but it is straight up fun, and it plays with age expectation and ageism. And we can still do this, and it is a good movie. But it's also probably the most fun movie that I think he ever did. But the, his movies, when you look at the 90s, the 2000s, and, and here in the re, in recent the last decade or so, there's such a visceral experience with them because a lot of them, uh, they, they touch on some very serious themes, like so many themes at this that he point, gets into that are serious. And there's, there's a visceral, emotional kind of reaction that often comes with them. We're going to talk about a movie here coming up where we got to mention, I don't think we did it the first, spoiler alerts. So uh, we are going to talk about a couple of movies that are important to know that there are spoilers coming. And that particularly comes with Million Dollar Baby, which he not only directed but was in. Uh, Hillary Swank made an Oscar-winning turn uh, prior to this, but this was another big one. And what you and Eastwood as well. Oh, with, and him too with the the awards that yeah, it best picture, best director again for Eastwood. Yes, yeah, Swank won best actress. Morgan Freeman winning best supporting actor as well. But do you think this movie is going to be a boxing movie where he's going to in, in a lot of ways take on a version of the Mickey? character from Rocky and she's going to be the Balboa and that's what you think it's going to be and I that's think what it looked like that's going what it, in. it was for the first half until here's the spoiler three two one there's during one of the boxing matches through a freak accident she breaks her neck and the whole movie becomes about something else do you live do you not live it became a story about euthanasia is what it became and now boxing is no longer a part of the movie at all on any level. It is. Compl- it was boxing was used to get to this story, and that's really what the true story is. And boy, was that heavily concealed. Oh yeah, the, the lead into the movie. Even you see the advertising for it and stuff heavily concealed. And good. And this is I gotta think behind the scenes something that Eastwood had a big part to do. I don't know this, but you know that so many times when the studio gets to call the shots when it comes to the trailer, they just are horrible. They don't represent it well. There's a long story there. You've got to think that Eastwood said, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm in charge of the trailer. And so he marketed it as a boxing movie, and it, it worked. And it is a good boxing movie, and it's a really good morality tale and ethics tale about euthanasia. When is it okay to hang it up when your life isn't going to be much of a life compared to just being in existence. Is that enough? And that's what the movie becomes. And that was not promoted. But once it came out, 
it was what everybody was talking about because it is a, an ethical debate. And so that, whether you're in favor of it or not in favor of it, it was handled so tenderly and so gingerly by a guy with, let's just say, had the roughest hands in Hollywood, knew how to handle it absolutely. If you've ever held, if you've ever gone to a petting zoo and you ever get to touch a raccoon, they've got the softest paws. I don't know if you know that. But, I mean, they're grizzled evil animals in a lot of ways with the softest hands. That's the way he handled it. It was exceptionally well done. Then came one of the most unique dual movie releases that we've seen in 2006 when he had a pair of World War II movies that were released and took two sides of looking at the Battle of Iwo Jima, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. And he's not in either of them. He directed it. And they're very gritty movies. You know, everyone looks at, say, say Saving Private Ryan as the end-all, be-all model of what a World War II movie should do. But you kind of forget there was a very different vibe and a very different feel between World War II split into the two theaters, the uh, European and the Pacific. Iwo Jima, one of the islands off the coast of Japan, its own story is legendary. But it's almost the same story, the same time frame told from two different perspectives and the Japanese version of it, Letters from Iwo Jima, is pretty much in Japanese. You're reading the movie, not unlike, say, a Clint Eastwood movie. You're reading it, not unlike, say, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And they're both spectacular. Telling the same story, but totally different. Yeah, and it was really interesting with that one, too, because we know Eastwood as as a guy who who really represents... Kind of our one of our USA, ideas of, of American of American masculinity and and a picture of it with what we've seen with his movies and even with some of the movies that he had directed and made. But you you really start to see this this idea of approaching things and approaching cultural topics too with Letters of Iwo Jima in one sense, Gran Torino in another sense too, where he was really starting to tap into into some of those those kinds of, of discussions and topics as well. Different cultures, but also a degree of tenderness that you just didn't associate necessarily for a long time with Eastwood. You started to see it in things like Bridges to Madison County. It's a love story with Meryl Streep. That's not what you'd expect Dirty Harry is going to get involved in, but he did. And, and where the uh, Iwo Jima movies came in and where you have the Somali culture. No, not Somali. What culture was that? The Hmong culture. Yeah, with Gran Torino. With Gran yep. Torino. Where he's dealing with this is it's tricky. And even in Minnesota, that's what I was that's where I got tripped on. We've got a Somali culture that's here in Minnesota, and a lot of people have a hard time dealing with it. And that's basically where his character starts from. He's a gruff, retired military tough Korean guy. Korean War veteran. Korean War yeah. veteran. And now this Hmong family moves in with several Minnesota actors in it, as a matter of fact, just to point it out. And he finds kinship with them, and he brought, he finds familiarity with these total stranger foreigner types that he doesn't even have with his own family. Pretty much he's had to manage to ostracize everybody that he's ever had enter his sphere, but for some reason these people, not only they, does he get through with them, they get to with him, and they reach his way into the point where his prized possession, his Gran Torino car, doesn't go to a spoiled granddaughter, but goes to this guy that he didn't know months before. So then we get into the the 2010s this past decade, and again, every couple of years, Eastwood was continuing to to churn out some movies. By the way, Invictus did very well in 2009. That's one that I have, which was about the um, that memorable South African rugby team, but also alongside of that, Nelson Mandela and Apartheid, and and discussing all of that too. That did very well. But then in the in the 2010s, 
again, a lot of variety in, in the movies that, that he produced in there, including two in 2014 that he directed with Jersey Boys and American Sniper. He had some success moving forward, but I think the 2010s is where the, I don't know how to say it, the... Not that they weren't any good or they weren't as special as they were, but there was a special quality, a special sparkle, a special polish that was visible through the 2000s. By that, I mean up to 2009 that just didn't seem to really be there. He got At into least not more- as consistently. I mean, there was a lot of interest and appreciation for American Sniper, certainly, both critically and commercially yeah. as well. I remember going to see that movie, but um, Sully kind of hit in some ways, kind of not which, which was telling that, that remarkable story um, at the center of it with the plane landing there on the Hudson and, and yeah. all of that. But um, but then you've got the mule, Richard Jewell that came along, just ones that didn't quite land in the same way or hit the same mark. Well, they, they all had a measure of success and they were all good movies. But I think just to make an example of one of them, Sully was not about Eastwood really at all. You know, and honestly, you kind of forget that he was involved in it at all. He directed it. But it was a true story, and it had just happened a few years before. It was much more about Tom Hanks' performance and Sully Sullenberger himself. Um, it was much more about those guys in Eastwood. Oh, who? Oh, yeah, that's right. It almost took on that kind of idea about it. And he took on a lot of things that were based in real life that were adaptions of real stories, whether it was about the sniper, whether it was about the Paris subway attack. Uh, these were all things that almost eclipsed yeah, 15, them. Yeah, 15, 17 to Paris. Yeah, yep. they were all about things that were real life that really eclipsed the movie and Eastwood's involvement in it. Which is kind of interesting to think about because that was another pivot that you have there with these these real-life people and topics, which, again, we, we had seen that with Iwo Jima and we had seen that with both movies there. That was kind of the start of what he got yeah. into with Invictus, with J. Edgar, with American Sniper. with and, I mean, starting to get more and more into you're not just telling this this fictional story. You're, you're telling an account that's based on something that was – that really took place, and he got a lot more into that in the 2010s. And like you said, maybe that dulled the sense of that it, this is a Clint Eastwood kind of movie. Now all of a sudden it's a, this is this is something that's based on something from real life here, and that became his, his kind of avenue. You looked at it almost as if, not that I think they're eligible of being considered documentaries, but in a lot of ways you look at them as documentaries. And you don't think of that as a Hollywood movie, even if you got Tom Hanks at the controls of the uh, U.S. air jet as it crash lands into the Potomac River, or the Hudson River, rather. Uh, you just don't think about it like that. This just happened in real life. Now we're going to see it worked out in a way I never saw it. Oh, yeah, and Eastwood directed it. That seems to be the way that it went, where he was almost front and center and the story was second. And wow, he can tell a good story. Something, and I can't quite put my finger on it, started to change as the 2000s became the 2010s. And maybe starting with the Iwo Jima movies, I, I can't really be sure, sure on it, but it looks like he's he's truly the icon and is always going to go down as an icon. But you could, only, uh, I don't know how to finish that sentence. Something started to change just a little bit, and I don't know if I can enunciate that effect any better. With this upcoming project, though, that you alluded to at the very beginning of this episode, it is a change because this is looking like it's going to be something that's kind of an original story, an original creation here with Juror Number 2, which apparently is in pre-production. People are getting cast right now. That There's some different negotiations on who might be in it. Nicholas Holt has been tied into this. Tony Collette as well. Those are the two names that just in the last few days have apparently been tied into this and are getting 
attached. Warner Brothers might is apparently very close to to getting this one set, and it looks like it's going to be a really uh, more of that fictionalized kind of kind of story. But it, it's amazing to think about Eastwood here at the age of ninety two, still rolling on and still continuing to be involved as he has been. And, planning to direct again with this one. I don't know how involved he is with the story, but even if this is a story that he didn't originate, you got to want, I don't know enough about it to speak really intelligently. Jonathan Abrams apparently wrote it. Okay. So what kind of involvement does he have when the screenwriting process or an original story, or at least getting it started? I've got an idea. You write this. You wonder how involved he got once it was written that he's crafted it, credited or otherwise. Uh, if he knows that maybe I'm going to keep this in my back pocket and maybe this will be my swan song, which it might very well turn out to be, you got to wonder, is this going to be an outing much like his unforgiving outing where he clearly spent a long time crafting this? He's well known for doing that as a director. Uh, he's an actor's director. They love working with him. And it sounds like Tony Collette, Nicholas Holt. These are good, well-known character actors and not just your average run of the TV movie of the week character actors. They're good and they want to work with him. Do you want to hear a synopsis that I found for this? I read it, but remind me. Apparently it's set during a murder trial where one of the jurors slowly realizes he killed the victim in a reckless driving accident and tries to both save the defendant and avoid incriminating himself. That's right. I read about that. Yeah, you're right. That sounds very, very interesting. It sounds maybe like some of those political thrillers of the 90s that we haven't uh, heard in a while. This could be a good outing for him. And I hope if this is going to be his last movie and he's going out on his own terms, that's what you want. You want him to uh, call his shots, craft it, do it, and do it well. And what a great way to bow out. Rather than, say, Jack Nicholson, who did kind of an okay cameo in an okay movie, and that's it. It is amazing, though, reading through the history that Eastwood has had with with his films that he's both starred in and directed, the way that this guy was was kind of a late starter in some ways. He really didn't get... It really didn't take off until he was in his mid to late 30s when he really got started. And again, kind of drifted his way into Hollywood, became somebody who just couldn't stick there for the longest time in the 50s, couldn't find his way, landed in a role that got him going, but was one he didn't really especially like. But then, like you've described over and over, he found this character and this caricature that really defined him early on, but became one that he started to find ways to play around with during the course of his career, whether it was different genres or different ways of taking a caricature that people knew him so well for, and yet he directed it a different way, or he acted within it in a different way, or he put both together in a different way. And the way that as he gained more and more creative control with movies, he found ways to be able to manipulate that which we knew Clint Eastwood to be, and that which we knew a Clint Eastwood kind of story to be, and do something different with it. And that's, looking at Clint Eastwood's career like we have in this whole episode, that's what really stands out to me is the way that he saw himself and what he was in the movies. And when he got creative control, he found ways to be able to play around within and just outside of the boundaries of that, stretching those boundaries more and more, and finding new ways to take what people knew of him and knew him to be as far as the the action hero, the gruff man, the the one who wouldn't speak all that much, the guy who kind of had that hard line edge to him, and yet found ways to introduce new themes and new ways of approaching it while branching out more and more from that over time. 
I think that there are, with the exception of those flavor of the month, flash in the pan type actors and actresses, there's two really good types of good actors and actresses. There are like the Gary Oldman type, uh, Guy Pierce type, that they are the creme de la creme of character actors, and they just disappear into every role. They're unrecognizable from one to the next to the next. But you don't see their name above the title of the movie. You don't go to the movie because they're in it. You might not even really know them all that well because they don't really stand out, but they stand out. Then you get Daniel Day Lewis yes. to mine too. Well, I, that's I, he was a big one in that sort way. Sort of, but he and De Niro and Pacino are similar in that, but they're also kind of a hybrid between that and the true movie star character. You know what they're going to bring, and they bring a very special quality. And that's what you want to see. If you saw Clint Eastwood playing a very non-Clint Eastwood-esque type character, you almost might want your money back. You know, you better go see De Niro doing a De Niro-esque character. If he does something like when he did Rocky and Bullwinkle, if you remember that, didn't really work so well. See, that's that's a hallmark of old-time Hollywood in some ways because that a lot of people, when they went to see, like, for instance, a Cary Grant movie, they, they expect to see Cary Grant. Yeah. They expected to see him being suave and sophisticated and, and being like no- that. And there's nothing wrong with that. If they went to see Humphrey Bogart, they, they wanted to see... This guy who's who's going to have a little bit of that edge to him, a little bit that way. And Eastwood became a new way of, of looking yeah. at that typecast that started to change what typecasting was. He was easy to define as an actor, and I don't mean that as an insult at all. He delivered his version of The Widget and did a darn good job at it, and those are some great movies. As a director... I think that's where he had the broadest range because trying to say, well, the movies that he directed, whether he was in them or not... They were all kind of like this. No, they really weren't. They were very, very broad-ranged, largely. Um, maybe his character in it wasn't, but the movies themselves absolutely were, whether it was the subject material or the way they were done. He did it directing as uh, a way that really worked for actors for obvious reasons because he definitely knew what their process was and made it work. Um, famously enough, he never even used the word action when he was the director. He was just, okay, let's go. When are you ready? Let's go. And there might be a moment, might be a pause, the actor's getting getting set up, and then they would just go. But that's the way it worked with him, and people liked that there were actors. He became one of the greats, iconic Hollywood actors that branched into something that you could make the debate, was he a better actor or director? And that's a great compliment. It's a that's, good question. It's a great yeah. problem to have. Boy, was I a better actor or director because I was a, he, great at both. He's a mainstay of film, just period, in general. He he didn't necessarily see himself being so tied into I'm just an actor. He he clearly wanted to get onto the creative side and have a role in it. We talk about the auteur a lot today. And w- when we think back on on filmmakers in the past, you know, Hitchcock, we, you think about that when you think of directors today and the the auteurs, you think of like Martin Scorsese or Christopher Nolan or Steven Spielberg. He qualifies. Eastwood definitely qualifies, and yet he's different from all of them in that he brought the acting side of it into what he did from the director's chair. And perhaps that allowed him to be able to see things in a way that none of them could and seeing an angle in a way that none of them could from being able to see it from the actor's standpoint and being able to look at the movie that way and yet also have creative vision to boot you know as a director spielberg and and uh, a lot of others they really craft the shots and that almost as artistic as the performance they're very technical in a lot of ways tarantino qualifies yeah. there too yeah. yeah 
When it comes to Eastwood, the performances are the thing, and he's got very capable shots and very capable cinematographers working for him, but they're not all that technically made. They're not quite filmed like a stage play. He's got wonderful movement in the way that they're framed and everything else, but they're I don't want to say less artistic or not artistic because they absolutely are. But it, that's not where the money went. The money didn't go into how the shot was composed. The money went into what the shot was about. And he really was an actor's director, not so much on the technical end. And this is not a slight at all. The pulls performances out of people, maybe unlike many other directors can, because he gets the process. He's been there. Even if he was just the master of the widget, he knows how to pull it out of people. And he worked. So the best way I can think of to start to wrap this up, give me your two favorite Eastwood Movies, and by that I mean best actor Eastwood, best directed Eastwood. And I'll give you a moment because I flung that on you. I'll give you a chance to marinate yeah, unless you want to go. That's a good question because I've not seen all of them. I I have not seen your, your the personals. full rundown. Like I've not seen the Dirty Harry movies. I saw part of the first one. Like I haven't gotten okay. there in terms of watching watching those and going through those. But I do I do love the Dollars trilogy a lot because it it brought that. That singular kind of character in there, and again, a guy who just was down to business with with what he did and what he handled, and yet it was it was such a starting block for Eastwood though too. Like like we just described, those were such starting block roles. Like, but growing up, I loved watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I I like each of those movies for different reasons. They all they they do have a different kind of flavor about each of them, but I I clump them together in a group because I just I just love those movies. I own all three of them. Yes, they are they are not specifically a trilogy in terms of one feeds into the other into the other. They're all similar. Their but own thing. Yeah, I, I loved that they were against the grain with the kind of Western they were. And I liked that his character was just this this guy who w- was completely different than anything that had been seen to this point. When it comes to directing, it's unforgiven for me. And that one's that one's up there in the acting category too that I really like. I I did like Hang 'em High a lot, though, too, from an acting standpoint. I really liked Hang 'em High, and I do like Kelly's Heroes a lot as well. That's that again. There's a little bit more of a comedic angle to that one, and and the adventure side of that one too. Regal's Dare is good, but I, yeah, I I do like um, I do like uh, Hang 'em High and um and Kelly's Heroes alongside the Dollars trilogy. But Unforgiven definitely is uh, my favorite directed one of his. I'm going to agree with Unforgiven on the directing angle. That's my favorite of his, uh, directing-wise. Even though he's in it, he does a very good job uh, as a performer. It's not my favorite Eastwood movie, and I'll get to that one. But, um, yeah, so well-crafted from a story standpoint. And, again, it's beautifully shot. And the cinematography on that one might be the best that he directed, in my opinion. I would agree. Yeah. Than, than any of the others. But it almost needed that because it's got a mythology to it, unlike, say, uh, Sully, where it's straightforward. It's almost directed like a jazz conductor conducting the jazz band. Just do your thing, man. It's cut and dry, and it's just telling the story. Exactly. It doesn't need to be sexily shot. So from a directing standpoint, it is absolutely unforgiven. And the way he pulled those performances out of everybody, whether you knew them well and they were a Gene Hackman or a Morgan Freeman, or it was some guy, I don't know who that is, but boy, they're good at it. Frances McDormand, or not McDormand, Frances Farmer, she was also in Titanic. Man, she was just, you know, slicing people up with her dialogue, and she was excellent at it, and it worked. Francis Fisher. Um, 
as far as him in the role, but also just as a movie overall, even though he didn't direct it, I really do like In the Line of Fire. And it came out, I think, the year after Unforgiven. So early 90s, maybe, according to me, yeah. was when he was in his prime. And he'd, he'd, he'd mastered it all. He had it down. And that's the one. He's the Secret Service agent that was involved in the JFK assassination. And now this fictitious president of now, uh, a guy that wasn't real, uh, you have uh, uh, John Malkovich threatening to assassinate the president. And this time, I'm going to get him, and you can't stop me. And it becomes a battle of wits between his Frank Horgan character of Clint Eastwood. And uh, um, uh, he has so many different names because they're all aliases, but John Malkovich. Um, and who, will he take the bullet? Does he have the guts to jump in front of the bullet is what it comes down to. Um, that was uh, oh, directed by, um, I can see his name. He's German, and he did uh, The Last Never-Ending Story. Oh, I could see his name and I can't say it. So forgive me. I'm not looking okay. at anything written in front of me. But it was um it's a fabulous fabulous movie and it's just tense. Rene Russo is in it and it is it's a fabulous movie and if you've never seen it, it is nail-biting right down to the final moment. He does a great job and he brings in that charm gruff it's like Dirty Harry with a lot more charm to it and it is a fabulous movie and it's my personal favorite of all of his maybe tied with um Unforgiven. Wolfgang, Wolfgang Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. I was like, Peter something, and no, it's not it. <laughs> so Wolfgang well, Peterson. That, that makes me think of uh, The Perfect Storm when I see Wolfgang Peterson. Well, name. and he yeah. directed Air Force One. He's, yeah. he's done a lot of stuff. He's a great director. Um, so, yeah, those that's got to be it for me. Yeah, so yeah, you're you were clearly in the in that nineties realm of appreciation for well, him I, and what he did there. I was formative in those years too, but I do think he reached the peak of his career at that point. I think the best work he'd put out and I'm not saying it, it it's you know far above and beyond. It's my personal preference. But that goes to show again the years of growth honing your craft and honing the craft yeah that's a that's a great way to describe it dave honing the craft that he had done by that point as both director and actor and what it led to he's the man uh and if it does turn out that if the working title juror 12 or whatever juror number two juror number two if that's the final title these always get changed if this is it, this is going to be a true swan song, and I hope it is as crafted as Unforgiven was in the pre-production stage. Um, and if he does decide to hang it up, it's going to be the end of a line for a true legend and a true Hollywood icon. But God love him for calling his shots, including the last shot. That's right. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2, just down from the airport. Check it out with those five theater rooms that are now open, the refurbished ones. The others, they are on the way in the next month or so. Those are going to be getting wrapped up, and we can't wait for the summertime visits to the Bemidji Theater that we are no doubt going to be having. So, talking Clint Eastwood today and it was a good ride go see some shows go look up them up on uh, I'm sure there's something on Netflix or DVD or streaming or whatever if you're not an Eastwood fan it's simply because you haven't watched him yet and I hope you skipped over that part of Million Dollar Baby there that Dave discussed if uh, if you haven't seen that we one gave yet. you fair notice yes we did we well you know it coming in anyway with this podcast by now if you've been listening for a while so and if you have We thank you for listening as well. So until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.